Edward Slingerland is a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, where he also holds appointments in the departments of psychology and Asian studies. Dr. Slingerland is an expert on early Chinese thought, comparative religion, and cognitive science of religion, big data approaches to cultural ana analysis, cognitive linguistics, and digital humanities. Wow. Whew. Besides numerous <sighs> academic books, uh, translations, and edited volumes, Professor Slingerland is the author of two best-selling trade books, Trying Not to Try and Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization, which is what we're going to be talking about today. I got to say, beautiful cover, by the way. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Professor Slingerland, welcome to Eurotrash. Thanks for having me. First question, if I have a little bit of grandpa's old cough medicine before every interview, will it make my podcast better? Likely. <laughs> Depends on how strong the cough medicine is. Um, yeah, so one of the functions of alcohol is to relax people, um, release their inhibitions a bit, downregulate their cognitive control, and that tends to make um, social interactions go better. So yes, whatever you are pouring yourself will probably help. Unfortunately, it's 9.30 in the morning here, so I'm just going to stick to tea. <laughs> I take my guests really seriously, so Nazdrawe, professor. I'm, I'm so sorry Cheers. that we can't do this live and that it's 9.30 in the morning. But yeah. Um, oh, right, just a little sippy. All right, let's okay. start big. We know booze is not good for our health. We know we can potentially make absolute idiots of ourselves. When drunk, we know we all have a killer hangover the next day if we go overboard. And yet, despite all of this, we still pick up the glass. Why do we love to get sloshed? Well, the standard story that you'll read in a Psych 101 textbook, the standard scientific explanation, is that our taste for intoxication is an evolutionary mistake. So uh, the there's different types of evolutionary mistakes. The most common, I think the standard theory is what I call a hijack theory. So um, ethanol just happens to trigger a reward network in our brains, and we figured that out. And so we're just like rats pushing a lever to get more cocaine or whatever they do in these addiction studies. We just we keep triggering it, even though we know consciously it's not good for us. We know it has bad effects. Um, it's purely a, 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 a mistake that this makes us feel good. Um, there's also various mismatch theories out there. So um, there are some theories that a taste for alcohol may have been adaptive in the evolutionary past, but it's not now. So um, it's, so the analogy here would be like our taste for junk food. So um, we, we have this taste for sugar and fat. Whenever we get access to sugar and fat, we have a tendency to indulge in it. That was actually very adaptive for almost all of our evolutionary history because sugar and fat were hard to get and you should indulge when you can. It only becomes harmful and problematic relatively recently in modern industrial societies where we have too much sugar and fat at our disposal and it leads to diabetes and obesity and all these problems. Um, so, so there's vices that we have, like our taste for junk food, which are definitely mismatched mistakes. They were adaptive and very recently they became maladaptive. Um, there are definitely examples of evolutionary hijacks. 
So I started the book with um, the most dramatic and um, obvious hijack, which is masturbation or any type of non-reproductive sex, uh, where we're getting this reward, the, this or- the orgasms, the, the best, the biggest carrot that evolution has, and it it gives it to us in return for doing the thing it most wants us to do, which is pass on copies of our genes. So the adaptive target is reproductive sex. But humans and other species have figured out they can get the reward in lots of wildly non-reproductive ways. <laughs> and so so you've got these evolutionary hijacks, you have evolutionary mistakes. In the case of um, <clears throat> hijacks, it's relatively costless. So uh, evolution doesn't care about perfect. <clears throat> evolution is just concerned with something that works well enough. And so the system where we get this reward, we get this orgasm, um, seems to re- involve and lead to enough reproduction that we're here to talk about it. It's a sloppy okay, so system. Even though it seems to we work. love to masturbate, uh, evolution doesn't care because we're still making babies. Is that, is that, we're right? still doing that often enough. Yeah. It's a costless behavior. It doesn't often take very enough. long. Right. It's not physiologically damaging, despite what you may have learned in school. It doesn't make you go blind or give you hairy palms. Yeah. I will. Um, I, I did go to Bible school, so it was a different story. Yes. There. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they told you something different. Um, junk food is actually really dangerous and harmful, um, but it's a relatively a very recent problem, and it's still geographically limited. So there, today, there are still plenty of places in the world where it's hard to get enough sugar and fat where calories are a problem. Um, so evolution hasn't had time to worry about that problem. In the case of alcohol, what I'm arguing in drunk is that neither of these type of mistake stories can be right. And that's because the taste, unlike junk food, the taste for alcohol has been um, with us forever, as far as we know as a species. It's ubiquitous. So um, you, see, you see it everywhere and you th- see it throughout history. So it's an ancient problem. Um, <clears throat> it's also incredibly costly. So it's up there with junk food in terms of, it's probably worse than junk food in terms of the damage it does to our bodies. So it um, harms our liver, increases our cancer risk, leads to hangovers when indulged in, as you, as you know. Um, so given the, the high cost of alcohol and the fact that we've been producing and consuming it everywhere in the world for as long as we know, something else has to be going on because evolution would fix this problem if it really were just a mistake. And so the central theme of drunk is that um, it's not an evolutionary mistake that we have the taste for intoxicants. Uh, these, these intoxicants are actually serving certain functions for us. In school, they told us that the development of human civilization went roughly something like this. From being hunter-gatherers for a minute, we suddenly invent agriculture, I believe, in Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. Then we start to build cities, figure out writing, and a couple of other really important thingies. And only then does alcohol appear on the stage, at least in, in, in the textbooks you know, that we read. And, and even then as a mere footnote, something kind of interesting, but also kind of unimportant. I believe we mentioned back then how ancient Egyptians drank beer. However, in the book, you write that we were drinking before we invented agriculture. Not only that, but we actually invented agriculture so we could have constant access to booze. Can you make a case for the so-called um, beer before bread hypothesis? 
So I was also taught that standard story. So, um, you know, it's very similar. It's parallel to the evolutionary mistake story about our taste for alcohol. Um, so our taste for alcohol is supposedly an evolutionary mistake. And then we're also told that uh, our production of alcohol is a kind of historical mistake. So we invented agriculture. We had some leftover grain. We left it sitting around with some water and fermented, and we kind of figured out um, as a byproduct how to make alcohol. The problem with this story, and this surprised me, so I didn't know about this actually before I started writing the book, but there's a movement <clears throat> in archaeology that has been arguing if that if you the this standard story can't explain the patterns we see when we look to pre-agricultural societies, and so one example that I talk about in the book is Gobekli Tepe, the site in modern-day Turkey. In Turkey, right. Where, yeah. yeah, hunter-gatherers are coming together. There's no agriculture. It's thousands of years before agriculture, building this monumental religious architecture. So these huge stone stelae with carvings on them, and then having these blowout parties, essentially. They're, doing, they're feasting. <laughs> we have the remains of bones of gazelles and other animals. And they're drinking something. So we have these big vats that we're holding some kind of liquid. And, and we don't actually have direct chemical residue evidence from this particular site that they were drinking beer. But we do know that beer was being made in the region. We know that uh, as far as 13,000 years ago, we have direct chemical evidence of beer production. So they were, they were drinking beer. <laughs> they were drinking it. They weren't drinking water out of these huge vats. Um, and possibly hallucinogen-laced beer, because we know they were doing that in this region at that time. So what it seems like is that you've got hunter-gatherers coming together and starting to settle down, so starting to be more sedentary, motivated by the desire to produce beer, not bread, because they're not using grain for bread yet. Um, and this pattern was also uh, revealing, as you see the same pattern in other parts of the world. So agriculture arose independently in, in many places around the world. In South America, the first main important domesticated crop is maize for corn. And it's descended from this wild ancestor called Teosinte. And what's revealing is that if you were looking for a food source, you would ignore Teosinte. It's got very small grains. It's pretty useless for making food, but it's got this sugary, starchy stalk that you can make beer out of. Um, and they that's uh, they still make this this beverage called chicha out of maize. Yeah. So it's pretty clear that whoever you know focused on teosinte, started cultivating it, started trying to make it more productive, was doing it because they were making chicha. They were making beer out of it, not making tortillas. Um, North America, the first cultivated crop is tobacco and, and tobacco that was grown with various hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic substances that it was mixed with um, to form an intoxicant. So when, so when all over the world, it seems like the first domesticated crops were chosen for their psychoactive properties. They were chosen. So even the cultures that didn't have drunk. alcohol, they uh, found another way to get kind of high or smashed. Yeah. Yeah, you see this. So, you know, in North America, unusually, they don't have alcohol. It's one of the few places in the world where they didn't yeah. have alcohol. And instead, they substitute very powerful tobacco, so much stronger than the stuff we get 
now in a, in a tobacco store, um, laced with various hallucinogens. And they used it in, a, in precisely the same way that alcohol is used. You know, you, they would smoke it before important meetings or anytime they had to figure something out. Um, so it's revealing to me. So two things. One is that it's the taste for intoxication that drove us to start civilization in the first place. So there's a very literal sense in which intoxication led to civilization. Um, and also that it's very revealing that in the few places where they don't have alcohol, some other chemical intoxicant is used for the, exactly the same purposes. So in North America, it was this hallucinogen-laced tobacco. In parts of the Pacific where they don't have alcohol, it's kava, this intoxicant that's made from this root. And so that suggests that alcohol is serving this very important functional niche. And it's so important that when alcohol is not there, you have to fill it with some other intoxicant. So. By the way, is there any evidence that other other hominids drank? Like, did Neanderthals find a way to get messed up? <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't have any evidence of that. Um, it's not impossible. They were pretty sophisticated. They were tool users. Um, their their brains were probably not that that different from ours. But we don't have any evidence of that. There's some indirect evidence that um, <clears throat> they may have been using uh, psychedelics. So they may have been using mind altering plants. But um, it's very indirect evidence. So now, as far as we know, it's um, Homo sapiens who really start um, producing and consuming alcohol in a very serious way um, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, we have indirect evidence 20,000 years ago, and it's probably earlier than that. Isn't there some theory, I might have it quite wrong here, but that this cognitive revolution um, in Homo sapiens happened due to use of um, intoxicants or, um, I know it wasn't mushrooms or something. Is there any yeah, credence to that yeah, theory? Yeah, I'm spacing on this guy's name right now. Uh, Yuval Harari, I think it is. Uh, no, 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 there's, he's, he's relying he on He mentions it in his book. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually somebody else's theory. Um, All McKenna, right. I think. Um, I don't know why I'm spacing on his name. But yeah, this is the so-called stone, stoned ape hypothesis that uh, taking mushrooms, you know, led to this rewiring of our brains that caused us to be able to have language and all this other stuff. Um, <clears throat> I don't buy it. It's it's based on a kind of um, Lamarckian uh, evolutionary story. So um, it's you know somehow taking taking mushrooms may change your brain. It's not going to change your kid's brain, right? Because they're just going to get the same brain you had because genes don't pass on acquired traits, like something that happens when you take mushrooms. Um, so I don't think it makes sense in terms of the way evolution works. But what I think does make sense is the idea, and this is something that Michael Pollan has argued um, in his, his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, that psychedelics were were probably really important in the early stages of civilization because they, um, by, by in the same way alcohol does, it, it depatterns your brain. It allows parts of your brain, it allows a lot of crosstalk that doesn't normally happen in your brain. And that leads you to come up with new ideas. Uh, new, and, and a lot of them, he compares it, I, I like his analogy, he compares it to a, a mutagen in genetic evolution. 
So genetic evolution can only work because there are mutations, right? You get genes changing. Most mutations are bad, neutral or bad, um, but every once in a while you get one that's good, and that's how genetic evolution progresses. He argues that for cultural evolution, psychedelics are doing the same thing. They're scrambling up your brain. They're causing you to come up with these really weird new combinations of ideas. Most of the time, it's garbage, right? Most of the time, the stuff you write down, the insights that, you have. Yes. Yeah. I yeah, made some so notes I talk in the book when I, um, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, let's call it a friend of mine did some psychedelics and then he yeah. notes. it wasn't me. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, yeah. I thought it was kind of, it's going to be the new war and peace. I'm the new Tolstoy. Yeah, and yeah. then I read it the next yeah. day and I, you know, suffice to say that I'm not the new Tolstoy. Yes. Yeah. Not even no, the new I, Dan in the Brown. book I talk about. Yeah. Not even the new Dan Brown. I wrote an essay called that proved definitively that truth is the color blue. And it was about 20 <laughs> pages long and it had diagrams in it. And I was sure that I was a grad student at the time. I was sure that this is it. Um, this is my dissertation. And they're not only going to just pass me right away, but I'll just, they'll give me a full professorship at Stanford because I've just, I figured out the most important thing in the universe. And then I read it the next morning and I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I will not turn Sounds that Sounds like the hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know. The yeah, right, right. yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, so, so it's mostly garbage, just in the same way that most genetic mutations are, are harmful or useless. But every once in a while, something new and really important may come out of that. And that's the raw material that cultural evolution can work on. Right. And so I think the, the, the proper way to understand the role of psychedelics, for instance, in, in human history, is as this kind of really dramatic, um, it's like shaking up the snow globe. You're just, all this weird stuff's going to happen, and some of it may be good. Um, and, and basically alcohol is doing a, the same thing, but less dramatically. Mm. And so you're going to get, le you're going to get less creative insights because they're not, your brain isn't as wildly depatterned as it is with psychedelics. Um, but you're probably more likely to come up with something useful on, on alcohol than on mushrooms. You're more likely to write war and peace on alcohol than you are on on uh, hence why we have so much awesome russian literature yes right? exactly speaking of evolution you write in the book that it works surprisingly quickly right you also write that historically cultures that have eliminated alcohol from their societies didn't have an advantage over cultures that drank even those that drank quite heavily like the vikings i, I think you mentioned those which is what will happen if alcohol was just pure poison uh, and nothing else. On top of that, um, you know, if that was the case, like you just said, evolution would quickly probably eliminate our taste for it, and yet it hasn't. So, what are some of the positives of alcohol? How is it? How how does it help us, or how did it used to help us when we were forming societies? So, to understand the functions of alcohol, you have to understand the human ecological niche. So you have to understand how unusual we are as a species. So we're primates, but we live these lives that are just radically different than our nearest primate relatives, right. like chimpanzees. Um, we live in these enormous groups where we're cooperating with strangers all the time. 
Um, we're completely dependent on tools. So we, we literally cannot survive without tools. And that means that we're dependent on creativity and innovation because that's how you get new tool sets. That's how you get um, your tool set keeps up with the environment, keeps up with your neighbors who are also innovating their tool sets. So, so the two main problems that I focus on, alcohol has a lot of functions, but there are two really dramatic ones that I focus on in the book. The first is creativity. So this has to do with our, our dependence on technology and innovation. Human beings have to be coming up constantly with creative solutions to problems in their environment. Um, we can't just rely on our instincts the way a lion or a gazelle can. We have to, we have to come up with new tools, new ideas. Um, the problem is that adults, human adults, are not very creative. We're very creative as kids, but as we age, as we mature, we get less and less creative. And so I talk about the work of Alison Gopnik. She's a developmental psychologist at Berkeley. And she's done these very elegant experiments showing that um, if you're talking about what psychologists call lateral thinking, so this is where you're trying to come up with something new or solve a problem that requires insight. You can't just kind of power your way to a solution. Uh, Four-year-olds are great at these tasks. They solve them very easily. And you're ability to solve these problems decreases over time in this linear fashion. And what I do in the book is show her graph of our performance as we age um, on these creativity tasks. I lay on top of it a graph showing the, the, the maturation of prefrontal cortex. So basically, as our prefrontal cortex, part of our brain right up, right up here, uh, matures, we become less creative. So the PFC, uh, to use the shorthand for it, is a really important part of human beings. It's the, it's the locus of cognitive control or executive function. It's what allows you to stay focused on a task, to get up on time, to suppress um, inappropriate desires or emotions, to um, delay gratification. It's the key to being a successful adult. It's also the last part of a human being to mature. So long after you are completely physically, sexually mature, your PFC is still not done developing. It doesn't develop into your well into your twenties, mid twenties or so. Um, yeah, which is I sometimes which is still really wonder weird. if mine has fully developed yet. Yeah, exactly. So some and I know some twenty year olds who really they're not quite fully cooked yet. This is weird. It's weird that this part of the brain doesn't mature until so late in life. And to me, that suggests that there's an evolutionary trade-off that evolution is trying to kind of deal with. Um, that's why it's slow walking in the development of the PFC. Because as important as it is to be able to tie your shoes and get to work on time and focus on things, it has costs. Um, you're less able to learn new things, and you're less able to solve these creativity tasks um, to, to make creative insights. And so what, um, what I argue is that humans have figured out a clever way to deal with this tension, which is I'm an adult, I have a fully developed PFC, that means I'm not as creative as a four or five-year-old. But if I could take a substance that would temporarily reverse that maturation process, that would, that would downregulate my PFC and kind of take me back to being as flexible as a kid is uh, cognitively, that would be awesome. Right, especially if it was temporary and only that lasts for a couple hours, then I was back to normal again. So basically, one of the main functions of alcohol 
and this is true of other chemical intoxicants, um, psychedelics and, and cannabis, is that it's down-regulating the PSC. It's turning down its function. So, so in essence, when you have a couple of drinks, you're, start, you're taking yourself back to the kind of cognitive flexibility you had as a, as a child, as a younger person. Um, but you have all the knowledge and the abilities that an adult has. So it's, a, it's an elegant, I think, so I'm arguing that alcohol is this um, cultural technology we have used strategically in situations where we need creative insight. This is why across the world, throughout history, you see this relationship between artists and poets and, and alcohol. Right, right. Um, that probably applies if we exercise moderation, right? Society pretty much across mm -hmm. the board, uh, societies, different societies, historically, um, they emphasize moderation. Uh, you have this wonderful bit from an ancient Greek playwright in the book that really made me chuckle. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to read it real quick. It's not that long. Okay. I think I've marked right. it. Yeah, page 52. I loved it. <clears throat> he says this, three cups only do I propose for sensible men, one for health, the second for love and pleasure, and the third for sleep. When this has been drunk up, wise guests make for home. <laughs> the fourth <laughs> cup is mine no longer, but belongs to hubris. The fifth to shouting, the sixth to revel, the seventh to black eyes, the eighth to summonses, the ninth to bile, and the tenth to madness and people tossing the furniture about." I mean, it's yeah. so funny because it's so relatable still, you know, going from yeah. a nice cocktail conversation to Keith Moon in just a couple of right. months, right? Right. So it right. seems we had problems with dosing long before we had like whiskey and, and distillation. Um, when it comes to alcohol, why is it so easy to get carried away? I suppose is my question. Because it's incredibly addictive. Um, alcohol is a very addictive substance. Um, it also, um, you know, so it's one of the functions is to downregulate your PFC, which is great yeah. for creative insight. It's bad for making good decisions that value your future self over your present self. <laughs> so it's the more you drink, the less you're able to regulate your own drinking because your, your inhibitions are down, your cognitive control is reduced. Um, so this is, is why. Is that it, why? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Is that why um, we think other people look so much sexier when we've swallowed a couple? Is it really yes. as they say yeah. you know, well, uh, that our standards are diminishing really fast or do just our blocks get removed and we suddenly recognize beauty in all its forms? A little bit of both. Um, so it's partly right. disinhibition. So we um, say and feel things that we really do say and feel, but that we were suppressing, that our PFC was suppressing earlier. Um, but also um, the idea of beer goggles is a real thing. So um, the other <laughs> never main heard effect, this expression before. Oh yeah, in, in English, it's a very common phrase. Um, right. It's uh, the the two main effects of alcohol that I focus on are. First is the turning down of the PSC, that's taking away your inhibitions. The other is it's ramping up these feel-good chemicals in our body, serotonin, endorphins. These are making us feel better about ourselves. Um, so we oh, feel yeah. more, more handsome and more clever than we were <laughs> before drinking. But we also feel better about other people because these are pro-social chemicals. They make us like other people more. They make us bond with other people more. 
Um, so it's a combination of it's both reducing inhibitions and and essentially creating new feelings in a way because it's ramping up these feel-good chemicals in our body. Um, and so this has to do with this, the second main function of alcohol, which is to um, enhance social bonding. So we have, uh, you know, we're, we're primates, but we cooperate on a scale and with an intensity that looks a lot more like social insects than, than chimpanzees. You know, we, we, if you look at humans, you know, in a ritual or in an army going to war, we look like ants or bees. We don't look like chimpanzees. Um, it's a bit of a mystery how we pull off that cooperation. What I argue in the book is one of the ways we do it is alcohol. If I'm going to try to um, forge a bond, we're a bunch of people and we need to form an army unit and we need to learn to cooperate and get along and trust one another. Uh, the best way to do it is to have a sit down and drink together. Because when you, you drink with someone, uh, in a way, it's a truth serum. So, you know, the Greek, Greeks and Romans believe, you know, in vino veritas, the, there's, there's truth in wine. Truth um, in wine. You have trouble um, lying or cheating. So if I want to fool you into thinking that I really like you and I'm a good friend and you can trust me, I need my PFC to be in top form because I have to be keeping track simultaneously of what I'm telling you is the truth, which is false. Um, and what's true. I know what's true. I have to keep those separate. I need to any emotional reactions or facial expressions that have to do with what I, I know is true, but is not what I'm telling you. I have to be able to suppress and keep those you know, from leaking out into my face. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's a very lying, cheating, faking is a very PFC heavy operation. And so if I have any concerns about you by sitting down and having a couple of shots or drinking some wine first, um, it's, it's a bit, I compare it to shaking hands when you meet someone, you're showing that you don't have a weapon in your dominant hand. Uh, drinking before you start talking about a treaty or a contract or something is like taking your PFC out and putting it on the table. You're saying, you know, I'm cognitively disarmed, so you can trust what I'm saying. Plus, at the same time, it's making me less likely to want to cheat or fake or, or uh, defect in our relationship because I'm feeling better about you and I'm feeling better about myself. These prosocial chemicals are, are, being, are flooding my brain. So it's a way to kind of get otherwise suspicious, selfish primates to trust one another and to feel bonded to one another. And I look at some experimental evidence that this is actually the case that people, if you give them alcohol as opposed to a placebo, they report uh, feeling bonded to the other people more. They, they feel better about them. They're more likely to cooperate. So I'm, I was just wondering when you, while you were um, talking, if, getting sloshed together would be a good way to flush out potential spies, you know, if yeah, their absolutely. prefrontal cortex stops working, uh, they would just be like, Hey, listen, I'm a spy. I, I can't lie. Yeah. To I'm drunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They probably wouldn't necessarily do that, but they would, they'd slip up. Right. Um, you'd be better right. able to tell. So humans, you know, we, um, we're very good at faking things. And we're also very good at reading faking in people's faces, their, their tone of voice and things like that. So I argue in the book, our, you know, our ability to detect lies and our ability to lie 
are so amazing that they've got to be the result of kind of runaway selection. So this is when there's an evolutionary arms race and you develop these abilities that are stupidly sophisticated. They, they're needlessly powerful. Um, so a good example of this is, is gazelles and lions um, or cheetahs. Um, so you have predator-prey relationship where the prey gets faster, the predator has to get faster. And, and soon you get to a point where they're both stupidly fast. Like there's no reason they have to be that fast, except for the fact that something's chasing them or they're chasing something. So they have to keep up in this arms race. Um, I think that's what's happened with human ability to detect and fake emotions and sincerity and things like that. So we're constantly worried about people who are faking commitment to us in order to take advantage of us. And we use things like facial expressions, tone of voice to figure out who's sincere and who's not. In this arms race, cultures are not neutral bystanders. Cultures want the cheater detectors to win because they want us to be able to cooperate. And so that's alcohol is a way to kind of, right. um, if you want to think about a cheetah and a gazelle, it's like giving the cheetah a, a motorcycle, <laughs> something to make it faster and to slow the gazelle down. Um, it, wants the, it wants the cheater detectors to win and alcohol is a way to do that. And so, so that's precisely why I, I, give, I talk about how alcohol is used in business meetings. It's used to treaty meetings. Um, there's a anecdote that Stalin, um, supposedly, if he suspected um, one of his underlings of maybe disloy- being disloyal, would bring them to his house and make them drink a bottle of vodka, and he'd just watch them. <laughs> and you know, he I was, just read he his, his biography, and yeah, and there they claim that he he organized these crazy drinking marathons. Uh, with mm-hmm. all of his underlings, and then he was just observing them, you know. But he wouldn't drink, right? So he, he no, he wouldn't drink. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he was just yeah. He just watched them, them making drink. fools out of themselves. Yeah, exactly. And right. saying revealing um, things, right? So that's that's a really good example <laughs> of how you can you can use this. Humans use it to gain social what they view as genuine social inter- information about other people. Yeah. Maybe this is a cultural thing, but or a thing of the times, but why do we suddenly hear alarm bells ringing when we hear of people who have a drink alone? Like, it's going to be completely okay with everybody if I drink a a liter of Jägermeister on a night out with my mates. But if somebody heard that I had a beer while I was chilling at home watching Love is Blind, uh, they would immediately think I have a bit of a problem. Not that I ever (laughs) do that. You know, I don't. Uh, But the double standard is kind of real there. It's a friend you've heard of. Absolutely not. This friend has a lot of problems. Um, but yeah. yeah, why Why is that? So why does it make us like perk up? Like, really? You had a beer alone? What's? Are you okay? Because we have an intuitive sense that drinking alone is dangerous. And so um, in the book, I argue that alcohol has become unusually dangerous in the last couple hundred years, uh, much more dangerous than it's been for most of our evolutionary history. Uh, and the two dangers are are distillation and isolation. So so the first problem is we have Jägermeister now, right? We have access to distilled liquors, which in, in Europe are a very recent invention. Um, we didn't have, and this was a surprise too when I was doing the research for the book, um, we didn't really have access to distilled liquors on a large scale until the 1600s, 1700s. 
So that is a blink of an eye in the story that I'm telling. So it's recent. Uh, distilled liquors, so essentially alcohol has always come with a safety feature, a kind of built-in safety feature, which is that natural fermentation can only get to a certain level before it shuts the yeast shut themselves down. And we've been ruthlessly pushing yeast to get more and more resistant to alcohol so we can make stronger and stronger beers and wines. But it, it tops out pretty low. So the strongest um, naturally fermented uh, wine that you can make is like an Australian Syrah can come in at like 16, 17% ABV. Um, and historically, that's wildly strong. I mean, we were, for most of our history, we've been drinking two to 3% ABV, so alcohol by volume beers. And then fruit, fruit wines were probably a little bit stronger, but not that much more. When you invent distillation, you suddenly completely blow away that safety feature because now you can produce a liquid that's like 90% ABV. Vodkas can hit the 90s. Um, and we're just not, our bodies are not equipped to deal with ethanol hitting our brain that quickly. Um, so if you're drinking a 2 to 3% beer, you can drink all day long, literally, and never really get beyond about 0.08 blood alcohol content, which is, you know, kind of a little buzz, but um, not dangerously so. If you have access to Jägermeister or vodka, you can blow right past 0.08 and get into like passing out dangerous territory in 15 minutes, right? It's, it's just, so we have this really, really strong form of alcohol now, which we never had before. Um, and then the second problem is isolation. So notice in that that passage from uh, ancient Greece that you read, yeah. the wise person when they reach a certain level of drinking, yeah, the I think book it's says, four. the passage says, yeah, four. They say you go home, right? Why is that important? It's because you don't have more alcohol at home. People don't drink alone at home in traditional societies, um, right? In having private access to alcohol is a very new and weird thing for humans. And in, in almost every culture that I know about, drinking is social and public, and you don't do it alone. You don't have access to alcohol outside of a social situation. And so for the ancient Greeks, um, they had these wine gatherings, these wine parties, the symposium, where there was, you know, you would gather at someone's house, um, the symposiarch, the person in charge of the ceremony, the party, would be in charge of passing around the wine. They would decide how much to water it down. The Greeks used to water their wine down. Um, and so they controlled the drinking. And if things started to get out of hand, they would wait and not pass the wine around for a bit, or they would put more water in it, right? They could control the amount you drank. Um, in ancient China, and even down to a traditional banquet in China today, you don't drink unless somebody makes a toast. You don't just sit there drinking as much as you want. You have a cup at your side, and it sits there until someone makes a toast. And then you do a toast, and then someone refills it for you, and you wait for the next okay, toast. Okay, you don't just grab the bottle and help yourself. Yeah, you don't help yourself. And so that controls the pace of drinking. So humans have all these ways, both formal, you know, these are kind of more formal, obvious rituals. But even if you think about going to the pub with your friends, um, typically you order in rounds. 
So if you have a drinking problem and you down your beer immediately and you want another one, you have to wait until I'm done with mine and then we can order another round. Um, if you're drinking too much, the bartender or the cocktail server may not make eye contact with you. <laughs> they may walk by and not fill your drink order because they think you add too much. We have all these ways, both formal and informal ways of regulating each other's drinking when we're drinking together. Um, I talk about this um, anthropologist who studied drinking and I think it was Norway in, in the most informal situation you can imagine, which is a house party. So just kids, teenagers yeah. going to somebody's house and getting drunk. Um, oh, but the I anthropologist noted- memories of that. Yep. Please <laughs> Okay. But the anthropologist pointed out, at least in Norway, um, there was a very strong norm that you don't go throw away or recycle your bottles. If you finish a bottle, it goes next to you at your seat. So it's like a visible sign of how much you've drunk and everyone can see it. And so there's a way of um, signaling how much you've had to drink to other people that's going to be at least subconsciously restraining you a bit. Um, we have all these subtle cues we use, you know, over the dinner table where, you know, whatever you're, you know, you're drinking at your girlfriend's house or something and you go to reach for the wine and pour yourself another glass and her mom gives you a little look like you really need that. <laughs> right. We have all these ways we, we, we moderate each other when we're in person. All of that goes out the door. When we have, when you can sit alone in your apartment in front of the TV and you have endless supply of vodka or Jägermeister right. or beer. So drinking alone is really dangerous. We're not designed to do it. We've, we've never done it historically and for a really good reason. And it's because as individuals, it's very difficult to moderate our, our drinking when we're doing it alone. Um, and you, you see the extreme form of this happened in the pandemic. Right. So um, it's an interesting natural experiment that you could never get permission to do, but it just happened um, where all of a sudden, every, you know, government said you have to stay home. You can't socialize, but you can have as much alcohol delivered to your house as you want. So good luck. <laughs> and it was a disaster like drinking. There's there's now, you know, we're far enough out of lockdowns now that there's good data on this. That problem drinking okay. went through the roof during the pandemic. Um, alcoholism rates went way up um, because you know it's a what happens when you have access to alcohol but not social constraints. This is it gets really bad. So that's um, you know it's a real danger drinking alone. So that's why people when you say yeah you know I was home alone drinking people worry about it. It's because we have this intuitive sense. My that, friend, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, your friend, whatever, yeah, this guy who. Um, yeah, has a problem with masturbation and Twinkies and yeah. So um, we know intuitively that drinking socially is safer. It's more normal. Um, and we worry about people who are um, turning to alcohol when they're alone. Is there any connection between colder places and alcohol consumption? I'm from Eastern Europe originally, so I'm trying to find any yeah. sort of a justification for our <laughs> yeah. general affinity yeah. to the bottle. I mean, um, now that you're saying, you know, explaining all of these kind of social uh, break systems, you know, I don't think, at least when I was younger, we didn't have many of those. Uh, that's no. why 
I remember my teenage years with a bit of horror. Like our idea of a good time was when you were 16 or 17 years old was to buy the cheapest, you know, uh, forms of booze and then get absolutely annihilated every weekend. It was almost a competition, you know, obligatory vomiting almost. It was extremely funny if someone would wet themselves and stuff. Like I'm surprised all of us are, are, are still here. I'm sure it's, all got to do something with teenage angst and you know being super self-conscious and and feeling awkward all the time and and alcohol kind of forgets you i mean it helps you forget about that but still there's probably better ways for teenagers to deal with all of that i wish we didn't do that to be honest yeah not everyone does that um so you come from a particularly unhealthy drinking culture so um, culture. <laughs> Why matters. am I not surprised? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the in the book yeah. I talk about um, what anthropologists call northern versus southern drinking cultures. They're talking about Europe, but Eastern Europe is a northern culture in this sense. Um, and so northern drinking cultures, as you say, are about drinking to get drunk. It's typically all men or sometimes all women, but it's not mixed groups. It tends to be you know same gender. It's competitive. Um, you're kind of you're not cool if you don't get really drunk. You have to get really drunk. Um, you're typically drinking distilled liquors, the the strongest kind of alcohol you can get yep. your hands on. It's not in the context of a meal or anything social in that sense. It's a drinking competition. Nope. Um, those are northern cultures. The, it's forbidden to children. And so then as soon as you can get your hands on it as a teenager, you want to do it because anything you're told is bad that only grownups can do, you want to do as soon as possible. Um, so it's a kind of taboo substance. Um, that leads to that this kind of um, really unhealthy drinking. If You can contrast that with Southern cultures. Um, so think of like Italy or Spain. And there, um, typically, alcohol, you're, you tend to not drink very much distilled liquors. You're drinking mostly beer and wine. You're drinking it always in the context of a meal. So it's around a meal table, lunch or dinner. Um, everyone's doing it. It's you know kids, parents, grandparents, everybody's at the dinner table. Everyone's drinking. So the kids are drinking. They're given wine, watered down, you know, just to feel like they're part of the group. Um, drinking to the point of becoming visibly drunk is shameful. It's something a grown up doesn't do. Um, so you, you, um, restrain yourself, um, and you're helped to restrain yourself because you're drinking weaker forms of alcohol. You're doing it with food. Um, and the other thing is you don't drink away from the meal table. So I remember, so my ex-wife is uh, half Italian and we spent a lot of time in Italy. And my first time visiting her family in Italy, we had this wonderful meal with this amazing Italian wine. I love Italian wine. Yeah. Much better than anything I could get in Canada. And so we finished dinner and I poured myself another glass to take up to my room because I wanted to take notes on it and really savor it. And I remember you know, picking, pouring myself another glass and standing up from the table and walking away with it. And everyone looking at me like, fuck are you doing like you you, what are you doing are you an alcoholic why would you take wine to your room like you don't drink away from the meal table it's weird um all of that um all of that helps people to drink more safely right um and you see this in the statistics because it um 
Italy, for instance, has the high, I think the highest per capita alcohol consumption in Europe, but they have, I think the lowest alcoholism rates. So a lot of alcohol drinking, yeah. very low alcoholism. Um, places like Russia or the UK, these northern drinking cultures, um, don't drink as much per capita, but they have higher, they have very high alcoholism levels. And to me, that suggests there's probably not, a, there, actually, we know it's not a genetic difference because we have nice controlled experiments where we have Italians in Italy and Italian Americans. So genetically identical people in different cultures. Italians in Italy have low alcoholism rates. Italian Americans have much higher alcoholism rates because they've mm. adopted this American drinking habits, which are, come from the Northern culture. Um, so, so culture really matters, and uh, right. being your in the description right of, culture. Yeah, yeah. Your description of a Northern drinking culture was kind of eerie in how accurate yeah. it was. If I apply it to my, you know, my own um, history and culture. Um, yeah, so I hope and that's a really dangerous way Eastern to Eastern European brothers and sisters are listening to us right now, so and that we start importing something else than pizza from Italy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, during your um, conversation that you had with Joe Rogan on his podcast, you said that we really like to get out of our own heads, which I thought was really interesting. Hence, the use of intoxicants. Might be a bit of a philosophical question, but since you do teach philosophy, I can ask you this. What are we trying so hard to escape from? This is a trickier question. Nice. Conscious, consciousness is a good thing. So my ability to use my prefrontal cortex to monitor my behavior and tell me if I'm talking for too long or um, I we're out of time and I have an appointment I need to get to or this kind of self-surveillance and self-regulation that we're engaging in all the time is really important. It's, we need to be successful adults, we need to do this. But it's exhausting. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of energy. And so I think there's just something appealing about losing, losing that self-control, taking a little vacation from self-monitoring. And there's lots of ways we could do that. So we can get into that state by play so you know when we play a sport we play a game or even um when we participate as spectators in a game so we watch the world cup or we watch a tv show or get absorbed in a story or we read a novel that's very gripping and that gets us involved and out of our heads that's pleasurable so humans seem to enjoy taking a break from ourselves and i think it's probably just a a cognitive version of why we like to sit down every once in a while. You know, we just get tired and it's nice to sit on the couch and rest. Um, I think that having a drink, playing a game, watching TV, uh, going to the theater, these are ways it's the cognitive equivalent of resting on the couch or lying down for a bit. We just were tired of running yeah. our PFC all the time and we just want to turn it off. <laughs> So I think I think that's part of what's going on. That sounds kind of reassuring. 
Um, all right, drawing drawing to a close. Um, I'm a big fan of. I gotta ask you this. I'm a big fan of Bohemian characters, especially this type of 19th century trope of an alcoholic artist. I just read about the famous French painter Toulouse Lautrec, who was not only a very heavy drinker, but invented his own cocktail, which I believe he just mixed cognac and absinthe into a tall glass wine. I think it, he called it the earthquake. Uh, I mean, um, just watching people like <laughs> drink in movies. Also, I don't know if you've ever seen Mad Men, the TV show, but the best part is just how Don Draper, the protagonist, and his colleagues are just sipping whiskey, you know, yeah. at every meeting, dressed in suits, like every afternoon. Yeah. Uh, somewhere in the book, you also mentioned one of my favorite movies, The Big Lebowski, I think. I mean, would he be the same without sipping on white Russians all the time? Probably not, right? So what makes right. just seeing somebody drink... In, in a piece of art so appealing? Well, I think so these portrayals of artists is just part of this trope where you, we associate creativity with alcohol or cannabis. Um, and that's not a myth. It, there's actually a good reason we have that association. So that's part of it. You know, you see these creative types, you know, in the business context, business drinking, in the case of Mad Men, it's partly for creativity, right? Partly they're trying to come up with new ideas. They are in a creative profession. Um, but partly it's the bonding thing. This is why people in businesses that aren't necessarily creative still um, use alcohol in business functions. It's a way to relax everyone, get them to, to feel better about each other. Um, so I think we, you know, it's interesting because part of what I'm arguing against in drunk is looking at alcohol purely from a medicalized point of view. So our public yeah. discourse on alcohol is purely medicalized. It's all about its physiological impacts. And if you are looking at alcohol that way, the only safe amount of, to drink is probably zero, um, or at least not very much. Um, and that's the conclusion of these famous studies that have come out recently in, the, in Lancet, this British uh, medical journal. Yeah. Um, and yet, if you look at popular culture, if you look at movies, if you look at literature, if you look at the way real people actually behave in their real lives, we make a role for intoxicants and we enjoy intoxicants. We enjoy characters who are using intoxicants because we recognize implicitly that they play a function in our lives. Um, they help to make humans human. And so I think that um, the problem is we're not articulate about what those functions are. We know they exist, but we don't think about them consciously. And we probably never sat down and thought, oh, this is why I use alcohol on a first date or something. Um, you know, why do you, your first date, you don't go and do meth together, right? <laughs> and you don't even <laughs> drink coffee or smoke a cigarette. You have a glass of wine. Um, that's not an accident. It's doing something socially important. So the, the, what I, I hope will happen with drunk is that by laying out explicitly what these functions are and what the adaptive challenges are that they're trying to solve, we'll be more articulate about why, why and when we use alcohol. We'll be more conscious of the ways in which alcohol use can go sideways, where it can go awry and become dangerous. And then we'll be in a much better position to make an intelligent decision about wh whether or not we're going to use alcohol and if so, you know, when and how and how much. So, so that's what I'm trying to do is just articulate 
why we find intoxicants appealing and we find characters use intoxicants appealing. Um, we need to get more articulate about this. Fantastic. I really recommend everybody uh, this book. Um, where can people get it? Probably everywhere online, right? Everywhere online, yeah. So there's no German edition oh, yet, right. which is surprising. But um, it's in every almost every other European language. So Awesome, um, awesome. Do you have any social media accounts that you would like to... Um, if you, where can people follow your work? Uh, so my website is just my name, edwardslayerlandalloneword.com. And that has everything you could possibly want to know <laughs> about my books All right. and other books and academic work. Nice. So. Nice. The very last, very short question before I let you go, the name of this podcast is Eurotrash, so I, I have to ask you something even more trashy at the end. What is the okay. most gross alcoholic beverage that you ever had in your life? That I ever had personally? Um, yeah. Something that someone called a Long Island iced tea but seemed to have been just whatever they had their liquor cabinet all poured together over ice with some <laughs> orange juice added. <laughs> that was horrific. Um, and that drink you just mentioned from that uh, poet sounds pretty awful too. <laughs> Absinthe and cognac <laughs> mixed together. But yeah, um, there's some pretty gross drinks out there. <laughs> all right. Uh, Professor Klingerland, thank you so much for taking the time. This was thanks. fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.